Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you that there are times where we turn to your word that are encouragement, times that challenge us, and times that convict us. Father, as we look at it in this morning, there will be those here this morning that will be encouraged. There will be those that are convicted and challenged. And Father, that is good. We ask that your Holy Spirit will work accordingly in our lives to whether we're encouraged or challenged. So, Father, we lift up each one here this morning. Each of us has come with a week, possibly with our own challenges and heartaches. Uh, some may have lost friends and loved ones this week. Others know of challenges financially and, and, and just the concerns that each of us have with runaway inflation and, and all that is taking place in our world, the war in Ukraine, and many other aspects that are very unsavory that happen day to day. Help us to focus our minds on you. Help us to open our hearts up that they might be pliable, that your spirit can work in our life to mold and to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We lift these up in, to your son and in his name. Amen. As a, as a young Bible college student, um, I had an opportunity to do an internship just before Marjorie and I got married. And it was a fascinating internship. Uh, the pastor was a very energetic young man. He was only about five years older than me. And his church in London was in the neighborhood that he had grown up in. A matter of fact, there was a, a, a couple of older ladies in there that told me stories of catching Pastor Jim running through their backyard and scolding him for doing such a thing as jumping the fence and evading their privacy. And of course, there was the neighborhood gossip to which Jim and his antics made it on. He grew up there as a non-Christian, a non-believer, and through the ministry of some other kids in the neighborhood and at high school, he came to know Christ as his personal Savior. And, and Jim would always talk about the church as a hospital, full of sick and broken people that needed to come together and, and, and to be touched by God, to feel God's care and concern. I was reminded of, of this godly man as I read an article from Got Questions this week. And I want to read a, a, just a paragraph from that article this morning to you. Churches are like hospitals, full of wounded and sick people. But in the church, the sickness is, is sin. And the wounds are those we inflict upon ourselves and on one another because of sin. One sin that causes multiple problems is the lack of forgiveness. No Christian is perfect and no pastor or elder or deacon is perfect. When all these imperfect people get together, disagreements, hurt feelings, and misunderstandings are inevitable. If our expectations of others are too high, disappointment is inevitable and can cause further, feeling, hurt, further feelings of hurt and resentment. This readily shows up in the church, but it shows up in all organizations where people come together 
The only issue with the church is we should be better at handling this. We should be better at grappling with such issues. And sadly, it is often not wrestled through properly. We end up grappling with one another. See, pride is, is, is difficult. It's a difficult beast to wrestle down and to pin to the mat. We're commanded to live lives at peace with each other, to journey with one another in harmony. But far too often, we choose self ahead of others. We read this from Romans chapter 12, 14 through 18. I'm just going to read it to you from the New Living. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Sadly, within churches, what happens is when disagreements come, it, it, it's far, far too often nothing to do with doctrinal teaching. Perhaps more around the concept of a person's preferences. And preferences make bad policies for churches. It moves a church from a church full of grace to legalism and to judgmental attitudes. This is how we end up with those funny but tragic stories. And I've read some of them from the past. There was one church where they actually put around a petition to all the church members unknown to the staff, and the petition was that all church staff would have to be clean-shaven. I guess I would be resigning. Um, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve at potluck suppers. That caused disagreement at one. There was a major conflict uh, at one church when the youth group board a crockpot from the church kitchen that hadn't even been used in years. There was one that made it all the way up the ladder because a woman brought into coffee time vanilla syrup for the coffee server to put in her coffee. But unfortunately, it looked too much like liquor. Then there was a dispute from one church whether you should be allowed to wear black t-shirts or not. Because after all, we know that black is the color of the devil. And while we can smile and we can laugh at some of these things, they are very sadly wrong. In First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter 2, we read this, verses 23 and 24, Again, I say to you, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and to be patient with difficult people. They're tough words. When, when you really look at those two verses, they're tough words, and they can be difficult to live by, more difficult than some of us would ever believe. 
Now, it'd be too easy to point at sort of our pop culture and our society around us, so I'm not going to do that this morning, because I think the, the problem is a little more baser. I think the problem we have is that even as believers, there's a human tendency towards selfishness. It's, it's a personal struggle that we have to work out in our salvation. And, and some of us, in, in learning to put others before ourselves, some of us are a little farther along in the journey. And then like a game of snakes and ladders, sometimes we get so far and then we seem to slither back into that, it's about me. So we struggle with that. It's difficult for us. Let's turn, if you're not there already, turn to our text this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we're only going to deal with the first five verses. Otherwise, I would have had to keep you here to about 1 o'clock. And there might be a mutiny at that point. Um, so we're just going to deal with the first five verses of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, I stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved, I greet Udia and I, I entreat Udia and I entreat Sentiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, I, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That first verse serves a bit of a tra- as a bit of a transition. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. The therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you look for the wherefores. The wherefore for us this morning is where you and I have traveled over the last three months. Because of all that Paul has written in his letter, all that he stated to this point. So here are some of the topics that we've covered in the last three months. We've talked about joy. We talked about growing in a spiritual harvest. With that, we talked a little bit about the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about being bold in evangelism living a life worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. We're to live a life worthy of that. We talked about unity and humility. We talked about unity again. We talked about humility again. We talked about joy again and rejoicing. We talked about putting others first, being a lighthouse in a dark world. We talked about forgiveness. We're cautioned to beware of false teachers. We're told to press on. And then we're told to live as citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth. With all of this, with all of this in mind, Paul exclaims, you are dear to me. To the church of Philippi, you are dear to me. I long to be reacquainted with you. You bring me joy, my heart. You are the crown, my crown. He was so in love with this church. Essentially tells the church at Philippi, you're doing well. You're not perfect, 
but you're doing well, and we'll get into some of that not perfect in a moment. Then he encourages them to stand firm in the Lord. Despite the fears they may have, the assaults from outside the church, the false teachers in the church, he tells them to stand firm. How do we stand firm? Well, he becomes very practical for us. And he equates that concept of standing firm as we're going to be living in harmony with Jesus Christ. We're going to be standing in harmony which means we're going to obey Christ and His Word. We're going to be agreeing with Him. So Paul gets very practical right away. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. I entreat, I entreat Udia and I entreat Sentiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you imagine if you're in the church of Philippi? A letter arrives. It's addressed to the church, the whole church. Everybody wants to find out. Well, it's from Paul. What is Paul saying to us? What, what, what's Paul talking to us this time about? So they gather at the church and they begin to worship. Then one of the elders gets up front and he begins to read from the letter. And I get that we have chapters and they didn't. But they begin to read from that letter. Chapter 1 goes by as we know it. And as we know it, chapter 2 goes by. And then chapter 3 is read. And then as they begin chapter 4... Your name is mentioned. Paul entreats you. And he equally entreats another person. And he tells you to get along with each other. Just to get along. It's an equal appeal to both of these ladies. But wow, just think about it. There you are in the letter for all ages throughout all of church history for people to know that you were the two ladies at the church of Philippi who didn't get along. Now everybody's going to read about you throughout church history. That's exactly what happened. That's what we have here. Paul urges Udia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to get along for the Lord's sake. Well, what do we know about these two ladies? What do we know about this situation that Paul points them out in? Well, we know they were members of the church of Philippi, possibly from the beginning. Right? Paul refers to them as laboring side by side with them. They, have been, they may have been there from the very beginning. Remember Paul went out the side the city gates near some water and they started to talk with these ladies? These two ladies perhaps we're there. That may be part of the issue. Maybe they were there at the beginning. And maybe that's part of the issue. Because we have a habit that we're entrenched somewhere for a very long time. We can begin to take ownership of the church and take ownership in a prideful way, thinking that our longevity gives us privileges. 
I've seen that in churches. Well, I've been here a long time. I get some privileges. There are no privileges. We know that they're prominent because Paul mentions them by name. So everybody knew who they were. The disagreement, it doesn't appear to be doctrinal. Because any time there is a doctrinal issue, Paul writes about it. The issue doesn't appear to be behavioral in the sense of some sort of lifestyle sin going on. Remember in Corinthians, he points out the problems around marriage, and he points about the problems around uh, people suing each other in the church. He doesn't do that here. Paul doesn't even tell us exactly what the issue is. So it seemed that it's something that's rather trivial, some sort of personal matter, some sort of preference matter. Whatever it was, it was interfering with the church life. And it was interfering to such a manner and such a way that their disagreement made it all the way to Paul in prison in Rome. And I know this may be a little speculative, but I have a feeling that if their disunity and disagreement made it all the way to Rome in a Roman prison where Paul was, it probably made its way around town too. That people would know what was going on. Paul still, though, shows admiration for these two ladies. He still shows and recognizes the work that they had done. He refers to them as believers. So what happened? It seems that someone made a mountain out of a molehill. One of these two ladies has a bee in their bonnet or a burr under their saddle. Whatever the cliche you want to use, whatever the issue, Paul calls them, Paul pleads with them to agree in the Lord, to, to look beyond themselves. Paul's already stated this before and before, again and again. It's not about us. It's about Him. Remember, we've done this before, joy. What's joy stand for? Jesus, others, yourself. That's what he's telling them here. It's not about them. Some hills are not worth dying on. The two women were to bring their attitudes into harmony. Paul stresses unity repeatedly in his letter, and he calls for it again right here. Look at Philippians chapter 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And again in chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
And then later in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And knowing that these two ladies might not be able to do it by themselves, Paul asks his companion, his true companion, to aid them, to help them out, to see that they get back on track. Look at the verse as he reminds his true companion. And that may have been Luke. There's some speculation when you start reading about it. But he says this, that Udia and Syntyche and Clement, uh, they're all worked together for the sake of the gospel. At one time, there was unity between these two ladies. And there was unity that they worked with the whole church for the gospel's sake. If that weren't enough of a pull, then Paul writes this. Sort of lowers the boom when he says, whose names are in the book of life. This is no ordinary book. Luke 10 20 says this, Nevertheless, do not re rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It, it's a reminder here. Hey, get along, because you're going to be in heaven. You're, they're going to be there. So learn to, to get along. Like how Chuck Swindoll says it. He states this concerning this. This doesn't mean that we cease having our own opinions about things, but it does mean that we don't hold our opinions on certain issues over our, va over our values for other people. Other people are important, not just necessarily your opinion. And so the call goes out to these two ladies, just get along, get along in the Lord. The last two years have given you and I this, it's almost like we're sitting in a stadium, at least that's how I feel about it, sitting in a stadium over these last two years, and it gives me an opportunity to watch these verses in the church play out live. And they haven't played out so well in churches across the world. What I mean by that, so over the last two years as we've gone through this pandemic. So watch the churches in the world. People who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ have allowed polarization to come into the church. Polarization on issues such as vaccines. Does it matter if you're vaccinated or not? Does it matter to me? Should it matter to you? Does it really matter if you supported the Republican ticket or the Democratic ticket in the U.S.? Both parties are, are godless. It's not like they're God's party. And to boot, as Canadians, we don't even have a pony in the race. But we let the American election divide churches in Canada and divide Christians. That should never have happened. How about we move a little closer to home? Here are some things I've heard in the churches over my 50 years. They're odd things and they tend to cause dissension and people will argue over them. Hymn books or PowerPoint slides. 
What about when children are a little too loud in the service? Or maybe they're playing somewhere in the church a little loud and running around. And an adult will come up and think, hey, they shouldn't be doing that. And they scold them a little too harshly. I get we don't want them to be in danger. But I would never want to scold a child for being a child in a service or in a hallway or in a gymnasium and have them turn away from Christ. I won't want to be responsible for that. We need to live with grace. Here's a dangerous one, and this has happened in every church that I've ever been at, the church kitchen. And notice I said the church kitchen, because the church kitchen belongs to the whole church, and the church kitchen is there to enable ministries to serve and to minister to people and to meet needs in whatever ministry and whatever capacity. Remember, I worked with youth for 10 years. I have been accused of leaving the kitchen a mess a few times in that decade. That was just at the last church I worked with youth at. But I was accused a few times. Now, did I do it purposely? No. To my standards, the kitchen looked fine. Everything was good. Marjorie wasn't there those couple of times, I don't think. But it looked fine. But in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of eternity, does it really matter if the kitchen is a little messy when someone leaves? Does it really matter if something's left out of spot? The church belongs to God. The rooms are here to facilitate ministry for one another. I've been involved with some people underneath working with me when I've led certain ministries that no matter how many times you show them or talk to them, Marge and I were talking about this the other day as I was going over this, I'd take them into the room and I'd say, okay, because there was coming in the next day a homeschooling group. Okay, when we're done, we need to set the chairs up like this and I'd show them how it's done and sure enough, I'd get a complaint the next week. It never seemed to happen in the way it was supposed to. Did it really matter? Was it that important? What was my response? Well, my response was grace. I put into my schedule on Thursday evenings to make sure I went to that room and to make sure that the chairs were just so. I had gone over and over with the people that used the room, and for some reason, they just didn't get it. It wasn't a hill to die on. It's just a room. Did it affect me? Yes, it took a little extra time, but it wasn't worth the strife or the continued hassle. If I had have believed that they were doing it in spite, I would have had a conversation with them. It, it would have been a gentle conversation, but we would have had a conversation. But something just didn't connect. And I thought, well, what's more important? Well, what's more important is the Savior. What's more important is the mission of the church. Not whether that room gets exactly like it should be. What was more important was 
the mission. That was the big deal. So the issue here in Philippians is not the disagreement. The issue is how these two members handled the disagreement. So as Paul goes on, he tries to center us again. Look at verse 4. He tries to center us by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. And this is not some empty sentiment. This is not uh, an appeal to positive thinking. Rather, it's a command that we need to rejoice in all circumstances. One commentator stated it this way, The Christian is to maintain a spirit of joy in the Lord. He is not immune from sorrow, nor should he be insensitive to the troubles of others. Yet he should count the will of God his highest joy, and, be, and so be capable of knowing inner peace and joy in every circumstance. Joy is, the, is a fruit of the Spirit. As we grow in Christ, as, as we obey the Lord, as we learn to live in harmony with Him, the result is joy. To have this joy, we do need to live in obedience. We do need to live in harmony. And then the joy of the Lord becomes part of us. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The New Living states it this way. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Verse 5 is not removed so much from this call for unity. It is part of the call. The word translated reasonableness it is in the Greek, it's a, it's a bigger word. It's a, it's a much fuller word than, than could be translated with one English word. I like some of the definitions I was able to find. Sweet reasonableness, considerate, big-heartedness, forbearance, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, charitableness, mildness, generosity. This is a big, encompassing word. Sweet, reasonable, big-heartedness, gentleness, they all seem to do a good job of describing what Paul wants to tell us here. We can all think of an unreasonable person, can't we? That's pretty easy for us. The person who doesn't get along really with anybody. It's everybody else's fault. I, um, we had a neighbor, and uh, this neighbor was known for their personality. Fortunately, they were also known to attend a Bible-believing church. And if little children from the neighborhood made it onto her front lawn, heaven forbid, a raging middle-aged woman would show up on the porch screaming at the kids to get off her lawn. She'd be very upset with them. And if one of the balls from one of the neighborhood children went into her backyard, you were not allowed to go get it. Oftentimes she would deny there was ever a ball in her backyard. She would take it and hide it somewhere. And then if you were watching, because she was next door to us, one of her grandchildren would visit. And guess what would go out the driveway with the grandchildren after the visit as they were bouncing the ball down the driveway or 
a smaller ball, flicking it in there. Yes, there would go the neighborhood children's balls home with her grandchildren. She would not give them back. I knew people that went to the same church that she went to. Halloween, oh, I should mention Halloween, if she participated, was only a pencil and a little verse. And she should have just kept the door closed because she was not known by children in the neighborhood to be generous. And the people I knew from her local church said, oh, you live beside so-and-so. I just said, why? Well, she had the reputation at her church that would rival Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street. And that is the honest truth. This type of person is demanding. It needs to go their way and only their way. They're always right. They live with tunnel vision. There's no give or take. People, when they relate, relate more on a level of not wanting to upset the apple cart, to use an old saying. We don't want to upset them. Others would just avoid them. Why would they avoid them? Well, they would steer clear because they didn't want the conflict. Because this type of person is always ready for a battle. Now, sweet reasonableness doesn't mean you're a walkover. It's hard to put into words. A few people come to mind, but somebody who is sweet and reasonable, they can be firm but compassionate. They don't always have to get things their way. They're willing to compromise. Even when they insist on something, there's, there's a sweetness and a kindness in their actions. They're the type of person who is willing to work with others, who, who can look over others' faults and quirkiness. They're a person who's easy to get along with, that is full of integrity. When a need is presented, and if they're able to, they will meet that need. Even if it means sacrifice on their part, they will meet that need. They are generous. Many times this is accomplished without even a word being spoken. While many will be aware of their big-heartedness, their compassion, their generosity, they themselves have no need to be at the center of attention. Biblically, I'm reminded of the story of Abigail and her husband Nabal. That comes to mind. See, David was on the run from Saul, and he had moved into the wilderness near Carmel. It was sheep-shearing time. Also a good time to make a, a quick buck if you were inclined to do so by relieving the local farmer of his wool before he gets it to market. So often a farmer would need protection, and he might have to hire protection to guard the wool at harvest time so that the workers could tend the sheep and could shear. Well, David afforded Nabal a safe environment to carry out his shepherding and shearing duties. This time of the year was also a time of celebration. There was a feast that would take place. So David decided to request of Nabal an opportunity for his men to join in that feast. Sort of a thank you for affording him such protection. His men, likely at that point, had mostly hunted or fished and gathered from the land. So they thought maybe a feast would be nice. Nabal, though, was very short-sighted. Well, Scripture puts it this way from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 3. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. 
But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. So Nabal refused David's request, even calling them outlaws, though they had never done anything to him. But one of the servants reports it to Abigail and says this further on in the chapter. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us. We have never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is nothing, go, not that there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. And you'll recall what Abigail did. She put together a feast, and without Nabal knowing, she went and made peace with David. And if you read the story in 1 Samuel, you'll find out that Abigail recognizes herself that her husband is ill-tempered and foolish. David blesses her, thanks her for keeping him from doing wrong, because he was set out to destroy that household. Abigail was wise and generous and reasonable, unlike her husband Nabal. So this reasonable and big-heartedness is for everyone in the church of Philippi. And by that, it's for every Christian that has ever lived or ever will live. It's interesting to think that our reputation should be one of reasonableness. And that reasonableness should be known to people in the congregation and outside the congregation, for believer and non-believer. And because we're a corporate gathering of believers, there should be this spillover effect to the community at large. The local church should have a good reputation. The local church should be, the, the best working condition should be found at your local Bible-believing church. And I don't say that out of self-interest. I have worked long periods on both sides now. I really mean it. Pastors should love working at their churches. Unfortunately, statistics are telling us right now that is not true. Congregations need to be known for their reasonableness in their dealings with staff, in remuneration, in expectations. I listened to a leadership podcast this week about pastors. One of the pastors stated there, one of the issues in our churches today is we've piled on expectations to our pastors and ministry staff. So what has happened back in the 90s, it was like, oh, we have hurting people, there's all these emotional hurts, we need to find a pastor who can counsel. And then there was, oh, the boomers are getting older and we have all these lonely people, so we need a pastor who can do visitation. But we still want him to counsel. So now we counsel, we have expectations in regard to visitation. Of course, now technology has changed. So we need a pastor who not only can counsel and can visit and and visit the sick and the elderly and those in the hospital. We need somebody who's savvy with technology. Plus, we need a figurehead for every church event. And then, of course, come Sunday morning, we expect the depth of John MacArthur, the compassion and humor of Charles Swindoll, delivered by the voice of Alistair Begg. And it's more than staff. 
Anyone who does business with the church should find the church reasonable. Bills should be paid on time. And when you go into the bank, it should be more, oh, great, I get to help the people from the local community church today. Not, oh, great, the church people are here again. Well, the community may not like our teachings. They should find the church reasonable to deal with. That means no reputation as being cheap, always looking for the discount and never tipping. The same thing goes with who we deal with in the community for the health unit, the fire department, or any government official. We are to be known as reasonable people. And let's not forget the neighbors around the property and across the street from us. They want to see a building that's looked after and well-groomed. And our actions when we leave the parking lot. I've not seen squeal marks on the parking lot going out, which is great. Our neighbors will appreciate that. Although it's the guys in their 50s and 60s that I heard stories about leaving skid marks on roadways, not the younger ones. Um, but how we park and interact with our neighbors, we should be known to be reasonable. So we've acknowledged this word carries several meanings wrapped in one. One of those is generosity. I think the church should be known to be generous. St. Thomas, um, I'll name the church, Faith Baptist for years. I don't know if they still do it. Faith Baptist for years in St. Thomas would have at Christmas a program, the production they would put on. And that production would go over several evenings and it was only to raise, was a witness, but it was to raise money for something in the community. I think one time it was an x-ray machine. So another church I know of that sponsors the cleanup regularly. So if you were to go around that church, the local park, which is about two blocks away, is always clean. And it's people from the church that do it. And the neighbors know it. So they're known as good neighbors. Inside the church should be just as reasonable to deal with each other. Because what happens inside gets leaked outside. It's funny that those who are most unreasonable inside like to make sure that people outside the church know how unreasonable we are inside the church, if you follow what I mean. So whether inside the church or outside the church, we should be known as generous, reasonable people. That doesn't mean being a pushover, but nor does it mean being unnecessarily stubborn or cheap. But why should we do this? The end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand or near. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Recall earlier in the letter, we were asked to be lights. We were asked for the sake of Christ to be lights in a dark world. And that's what this references back, back to. The time is short. When Christ will soon come and wrap this up, or it may be short for the person that we're witnessing to, or that is a community person, time is short. We need to be a light for them. We seek unity. We put away self-quarreling. Why? A reputation of being reasonable and big-hearted. Simply put, bickering, self-centered people are not very good lights in a dark world. To be a real lighthouse for the Lord, we need to be clothed in humility and in unity, putting others first, being reasonable so that we're attractive and shining beacons to 
the world around us. So yes, in sorts, the church should be a hospital. And we are all hurt. We all have bruises. We all have broken relationships we deal with. And the church should be that hospital that people can come to get care. I know when I go to a hospital, I like to have compassionate doctors. I like doctors that, because of where I am at with the hurt, that kind of put my needs ahead of theirs. So they look in on me to make sure I'm fine before they go to lunch. And nurses that are big-hearted and generous and reasonable to work with, why would we expect anything less from the church of God? We need to be big-hearted people that care. We need to people that get along with each other inside the church and with those outside the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, um, we thank you that there are names in here that do travel through history to teach us lessons. Father, I just pray this morning that you'll help us to work in our own lives, to allow the Spirit to work in our lives, that we might be known as big-hearted, that we might be known as having a sweet, reasonable to us, a generosity, a kindness, Father, that we could shine as beacons for you. So, Father, we continue to pray that there will be unity in the church, that we won't get distracted from all the other things that happen around us, but we may understand that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about being a shining beacon for him to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to learn to live in harmony with you in everything that we do. Christ's name we pray. Amen.